We're going to be looking at the Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to encourage you to take your outline out of your uh, bulletin, as well as get your Bible out and turn to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Uh, this morning we continue in that chapter, and we've been looking at what it means to walk worthy of your calling. What does it mean to walk worthy of your calling? Are you walking worthy of your calling? Am I walking worthy of my calling? And this is a part of our ongoing series entitled, Come Grow With Me. Because one of my concerns is that we need to be growing. If you're you're a Christian, you need to be growing. You need to be maturing in Christ. You need to be of use to the Master that he can use you in any realm that he chooses. And it's growth. It's growth until he calls you and me home. And we began uh, about three or four weeks ago on a prayer that will change your life. And that's Paul's prayer that's recorded for us in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. It's a prayer that God wants to answer in your life. That's important to know. It's not just a prayer that Paul prayed for you and me and for the Ephesian believers. It is a prayer that he longs God to answer in your and my life. He wants us to grow and become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I think it's in America, it, it, it's one thing to come to Christ, but, you know, it's easy to sort of drift along. You know, you make a commitment, you're going to go to church, and so you're in church maybe for the morning service, and that might be all you get there. You might not be in a Bible study, and then you live out the rest of your life, and what happens is you find yourself basically drifting and not changing, not growing, not becoming more like Christ. And listen, here's the goal, that I may know Him. It isn't just to get out of hell and to get into heaven. The goal is, like Paul said, that I may know him. Or like Asaph said in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing on earth. Now that's what God wants to do in your and my life. So it's a prayer God wants to answer. And he does so as we cooperate with him in answering that prayer. And when we do, we find ourselves walking worthy of our calling. Now, I think it's helpful for us to remember the key verses to this series, Come, Grow With Me. There are three passages that I want us to be aware of, and we go through over and over them. The first one is 2 Peter 3.18. In 2 Peter 3.18, he says, Peter says, But grow, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The second verse is 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being metamorphosed, has taken place, are being transformed from glory to glory, just as by the Lord, the Spirit. And the third one is Philippians 2.12, in the middle of that verse, Philippians 2. 12 and 13, where Paul commands us, work out your salvation, literally work down in your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And listen, there are a lot of Christians throwing that work of God away. And that's why this series on Come, Grow With Me. 
Well, last week we looked at the first 16 verses of Ephesians 4, and I've included that outline in today's outline just by way of review. And let me quickly go over the first part of Ephesians 4 with you. If you were here, if you were not here last week, you can go on the web page, and that's on the front of your bulletin, and you can look at the calendar there, and there you can uh, connect and you can listen to last week's message, or you can ask for a copy of it from the church office on CD. But last week we looked at two main movements, two main movements of Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And that first main movement is there in your outline, your calling necessitates that you walk worthy. Your calling, my calling, necessitates that we walk worthy. And he gives two reasons why. First, because of what your calling means to you personally, And secondly, because of what your calling means to your redeemed brothers and sisters. We start with the first one. Your calling necessitates that you walk worthy. Number one, because of what your calling means to you personally. And I shared three scriptures. Number A, you are a partaker of a heavenly calling. This is not an earthly thing. This is from God himself. Hebrews 3.1, if you want to write it there. Hebrews 3.1, therefore... Holy brethren, these are God's children, partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession. There is no higher calling than God calling you to be his son, his daughter, to be his child. Number B, you are to know what is the hope of his calling, and that's his calling of you. This hope is not a wish. It's an absolute. And the passage there is Ephesians 1.18. Paul, again, that's his first prayer of the two in the book of Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Dear ones, it's great to know that he delivered us out of hell and that when I die or he comes back, I'm going to go to heaven. That's wonderful. But God says it's way beyond that. I didn't just salvage you. The hope of your calling is I have called you to be my son's bride. I have called you to reign with him. And that's what all this earthly life as a redeemed person, as a Christian, as one of God's children is all about. Preparing you and me to reign with his son. Don't throw that work away. And that's why it necessitates that we walk worthy. And number C, you are to make certain... Make certain about his calling, or your calling, I'm sorry. This is not a prayer uh, to ask Jesus into your heart, and a lot of people do that. You know, they say, well, I've asked Jesus into my heart, I've been forgiven, I'm going to go to heaven. Good, now I'll just get on my way, you know, because I know that's got settled. No, he says, it's way, make certain, it's more than a prayer that you pray as a child or as a young person. It's way more than that, he says. You don't just get saved and continue on in your old ways. And so Peter says to those he writes to and to you and me, make certain about your calling. That scripture is 2 Peter 1, 4 through 11. He talks about you having or bearing the divine nature. Born into his family, you have the nature of God in you. Because God, the Holy Spirit, now dwells in you. He permanently lives in you. And he talks about qualities that you add to that faith that brought about that birth. Seven of them. And then he says these words, For if these seven qualities are yours, 
and are increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities, listen to this, he who lacks these qualities, obviously there are Christians that lack these seven qualities, he says, is blind, blind, or short-sighted. And he goes on, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Amazing scripture. And we'll look at that at some other time. But amazing. Make certain about your calling. So your calling necessitates that you walk worthy because of your, what your calling means to you personally. But secondly, he develops what your calling means to your redeemed brothers and sisters. And we saw two parts there. You are always to respond to them in love. And he tells how you do that in verses 1 and 2. And number B, you are to give all diligence. There's that word again. Give all diligence to preserving the Spirit's unity. And that's verses 3 through 6. In those verses, seven times Paul uses the word one. He uses the word one seven times to express the unity. Listen, the unity of this union you have and share, you have with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you share with your brothers and sisters. So it's not just a soul thing here. It's not just you being saved. I'm glad I'm saved, forgiven, going to heaven. It's way more. He says, I have put you into a union with Jesus as well. And that, as being in that union, you are in that union with your brothers and sisters as well. So your calling necessitates that you walk worthy. Now, the second major movement that we looked at is your calling requires the use of your grace gifts for the whole body. You know what? Some of you have not figured this. You can't get around that. This comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the Holy Spirit. You and I can't get around that. Listen again. Your calling requires the use of your grace, gifts, gift or gifts for the whole body because of that union and so forth. Two points under that. At your calling, Christ gave you your gift or your gifts. Look at verse 7. At your calling, Christ gave you your gift or your gifts. But to each one of us, that's you, that's me. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Everyone here that's redeemed has at least one gift or more that was given to you, that was on loan to you, if you please, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you got that the moment you got saved. We went over that last week. And Christ's specific, well, first of all, Christ's great victory made this possible. That's verses 7 through 10. His great victory made it possible for you and me to have the gifts that he gave to us. And number B, Christ's specific choice concerning you and your gift. Again, that was verse 7, which I just read. He made a specific choice. He decided which gifts you would have and which gifts I would have. And for the sake of the body, he being the head, and for the whole body, 
the brothers and sisters in it. Number two, Christ gave gifted men to his church. Verses 11 through 16. He gave gifted men to his church. Uh, Those gifted men are stated in verse 11. There's the apostles and the prophets. And then there are the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. It might be pastor, teacher, or it might be pastors and teachers, depending on uh, the, the rules of grammar there. But those first two, the apostle and the prophets, they laid the foundation, Paul says. And I told you last week, we don't put the foundation on the 21st century, the 21st floor. We put it at the bottom there, at the very beginning. And he talks about that in chapter 2. They laid the foundation and they're no more. We mentioned about the apostles. They had to be eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to specifically have chosen them to be apostles. They also had to be an eyewitness to his resurrection. And they also were empowered with the ability to work miracles to confirm the message was from God. We saw that last week. And there's a lot more that could be said about that. But notice the overall purpose of their ministries. The apostles, the the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Notice the overall uh, purpose of their ministry. Verse 12, here's what they're supposed to do. These are gifted men given to the church for the equipping of the saints. That's all the believers. Why do they equip them? For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And number C... Under that number two point, Christ gave gift of men to his church. The growth, they and you. The growth, they and you bring to the whole body is presented there. Now, it's interesting how Paul's going to make a major shift and yet still tie it all together. That brings you to the new part of your outline. And the first we're going to look at here this morning is basically one point, one major point. Your calling... And your old life without Christ. We're going to look at that this morning. But Paul could contrast that with your new life in Christ. And we'll not see that this morning. But in order to get the whole context, let me read verses 17 through 24. So would you follow along as we read this? This is what we're going to look at this morning. And I trust that God the Holy Spirit will make the impact in your life and in my life as well this morning that he desires to be able to do. Verses 17 through 24. Paul writes, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they... Having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I'm looking forward to looking at that portion next week, but this morning we're going to look at your calling and your old life 
without Christ. Number one, right at the beginning, you are no longer, you are no longer to walk as you did when you were unsaved. Right at the beginning, verse 14 or 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. You are no longer to walk as you did when you were unsaved. Do you understand why you're to walk worthy of the Lord? And he began that in the beginning of the fourth chapter there. Number eight, Paul and the Lord strongly assert this. It isn't just Paul here. I, he says, Paul, I, Paul here. He says, so I say and affirm together with the Lord. The word affirm means to testify. In fact, that's, uh, or to witness. It's testifying the King James Version, by the way. And uh, it, it means to witness. And so here are two witnesses brought to bear. You, as a saved person, are no longer to walk the way you did when you were unsaved. Number B, this strong assertion, Don't miss this. This strong assertion is grounded in Paul's doctrine already set forth. He grounds this in the doctrine he's already set forth. That's what the significance of that word so, or you might have the word therefore if it's King James. That that looks back to something. There's a lot of therefores and wherefores, by the way, in Ephesians that Paul uses. But this looks back to something. I want you to get a hold of that. Knowing and understanding doctrine, biblical teaching, is absolutely essential to your spiritual growth. You really don't get a whole lot of sermons out of me. Lots of pastors, that's what they're good at. They, they give good motivational and convicting sermons. And you have to admit, you don't get a whole lot of that from me. Why? Because it is doctrine. It is the teaching of the Word that makes the changes that are permanent in a person's life. So understanding doctrine, biblical teaching is absolutely essential to your spiritual growth. Did you get that? It is absolutely essential to your spiritual growth. That's why a lot of people are not growing. Because they don't understand how essential it is to have doctrine or pro- true biblical teaching. And as I said, so many churches hit you in your emotions, causing you to feel guilty. And maybe we should feel guilty about our failure in our Christian walk or our lack of spiritual growth. And then you turn and what do you do? You make an emotional, uh, emotional response and a mental commitment to try harder, don't you? I've done that. Man, I've, and I like listening to sermons like that. It convicts me, and I like to be convicted, you know, and it motivates me. And so I make a mental ascent, I make a commitment to try harder, to do better, to change certain areas of my life. And your response becomes like a New Year's resolution. You mean well. There's no question about your meaning. You mean well, but the change doesn't last. Not too long afterwards, you're back to your old ways again. You know that. I know that. And you're asking why. How come it didn't work? I mean, I was sincere. Look at what Paul does first before he appeals to your and my will and the will of these Ephesian believers. He carefully and skillfully and clearfully sets forth doctrine, teaching, so that you'll better understand the greatness of your salvation. I'm convinced so many Christians today don't understand the greatness of their salvation at all. They know they're saved. They know they're forgiven. They know that they're going to go to heaven. They're so happy about that. And that's where it ends. 
And so he lays it. He says, um, he, see, uh, he appeals to your will by carefully and clearly setting forth this doctrine, the teaching, so that you'll better understand the greatness of your salvation. You'll better know God. And the more you know and understand God's written revelation about who he is and this salvation that he has given to you, the more you will be enabled to live out this great salvation by walking worthy of your calling. For example, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul teaches you about your salvation and what God has done and is doing and will do for you. It's there in those first three chapters. In the first part of chapter 4, he teaches you that you're not soloing as a Christian out there. No, you're vitally in connection with the whole body of Christ. This is a living union, as you, if you please. That's why he emphasizes one, 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 seven different types, times there. And the result of that, he says, that you and your brothers and sisters are to help each other become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout the rest of the chapter 4, beginning with this verse, verse 17, and through the rest of his letter, Paul explains how you are to walk. You'll see that word walk, walk, walk. And so, but he begins in the negative, don't walk like the Gentiles who are unsaved walk. But please note, this strong assertion is grounded in Paul's doctrine, teaching, already set forth. And by the way, if you're not getting, listen to me, if you're not getting victory in your Christian life, if you're not experiencing much growth at all, I'm going to challenge you to go back and look at those first three chapters of Ephesians. And just spend your time, just saturate your mind and your your thinking on those first three chapters. And say, God, I need some help here. Help me to see this the way you want me to see it. Help me to understand the teaching here so that I will move forward in victory and walk worthy of this calling that you have given me according to these great truths. So you're calling in your old life without Christ. You are no longer to walk as you did when when you were unsaved. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, Failure in the living of the Christian life, therefore, must ultimately result in a failure somewhere or other to understand the doctrine and the truth. End quote. This word walk, in your outline number C, this word walk refers to your whole life, both inwardly and outwardly. Your walk is directed by what's on the inside. What you are inwardly will manifest itself on the outside. And notice how it's tied to your mind, your thinking. Repeatedly he uses words that relate to that. For example, look at the text again. At the end of verse 17, he speaks of the mind. Verse 18, understanding. The word ignorance is there in there. You look at verse 20, learn. You look at verse 21, taught. You go down to the end of 23, it's mind again. All relating to what you're thinking. As a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. It's all related to the mind here. And obviously we're going to have to spend some time on that in this Come Grow With Me series if we're going to see spiritual growth and walk worthy of our high calling. So your walk refers to your daily manner of life. Listen, dear ones, listen. You no longer live your life like the person who is unsaved because, or the person who does not know God because you belong to God and you know God. That's why you and I are to live differently. Number two, the detailed description of how the unsaved walk and why they walk that way. 
This text has been useful to me. It's been helpful to me this week to give some real thought, dig into this, and to realize why I must walk differently because of what I learned here. The detailed description of how the unsaved walk and why they walk that way. Number A, they walk in the futility of their mind. Verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now Paul is drawing on the background that these Ephesian believers came out of. He purposely chooses the Gentiles that lived to the extreme their unsaved lives and thus includes all lives who live out their sinful life to a lesser or greater degree compared to these. That way he includes all the unsaved. Ephesus was known for being a very, very wicked, evil city throughout all of Asia Minor. The temple of Diana was there. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In fact, the temple and one quarter of the mile around the temple were uh, a place where any criminals could go and remain safe. So you can imagine all the criminals that were there that were wanted by Rome. They went there, and it was a safe haven for any and all types of criminals. Pilgrims by the thousands came to Ephesus and to the Temple of Diana for worship. And the worship there was orgiastic. I mean, to the nth degree. Uh, There were over... It it included uh, hundreds of eunuchs who plied their sexual activities there in the temple. There were over 1,000 temple prostitutes who uh, not only performed and practiced in the temple, but at night they would all converge down on the city of Ephesus itself and ply their trades there. There were the, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Diana was worshipped as the sex goddess. There were, there were all the temple priestesses and singers and dancers all involved throughout the day and throughout the night in one great sexual orgy. And then you had the big business of the, 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 the idols that were made there. You might remember the making selling all those temple idols that people bought up. And Paul, of course, confronted that and got himself into trouble with his team because of that. And along with that, the city was filled with magic. Remember when they got saved, they had this huge pile of magic books. This is the environment, the world, out of which these Ephesian believers came. And so they could readily identify what Paul was saying here about you are no longer to walk as you did when you were unsaved. Number three, by the way, it's not unlike our culture today. Wow. Not at all. Number three, Uh, I'm sorry, we're not, it's number three mile, you don't have this. Paul says, you once walked like that, but no more. Why? Because of the tremendous change that has taken place in you. Turn back to chapter two. This is for you and me. You no longer walk that way because of the tremendous change that's taken place in you and me. Chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, 
Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. What a wonderful thing to find those two words. But God stepped in and saved you out of that kind of a life. That's how he begins the description here, the detailed description of how the unsaved walk and why they walk that way. But notice he says here, he says they walk in the futility of their mind. He does not refer to the intellect only here. For he makes reference to the intellect in the next verse, verse 18, uh, where he talks about the understanding being darkened. And here in verse 17, Paul uses the word mind, referring to the whole soul of man. His thinking, emotions, will, reason, understanding, conscience, affections, the whole person inside the body, if you please. The unsaved walk in the futility. The word is vanity. We're familiar with that. Of their mind. What it really means is emptiness. They walk in emptiness. It does not bring them to any goal. It all leads to utter futility to that which is absolutely empty, utterly vain. Their life is a book of Ecclesiastes, which was written by Solomon. Vanity of vanities when it's all said and all is vanity. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's where this leads, the futility of it all. In other words, their life leads nowhere. It leads nowhere. Think about that. The unsaved person's life leads nowhere. It never provides a lasting satisfaction they continually seek. It has no purpose. They may find satisfaction to some degree in their marriage, their families, their work, their exploits. But in the end, where does it all lead Well, our next point is going to show us and tell us. But you think about this. No matter what they produce, the unsaved finally comes and breathes his last. And what happens? He ends up in eternal damnation. Utter, empty. It leads nowhere. Just into greater destruction. Number B. So they walk in the futility of the mind. But number number B. They are darkened in their understanding. This will explain a lot. The unsaved person is darkened in his or her understanding. Verse 18 says, being darkened in their understanding. The word darkened is a perfect uh, participle. It simply means to make blind. It means something happened in the past with, with always continuing results. Paul now shows why the unsaved live such a life of futility and vanity, such an empty, meaningless life. Their understanding... Their mind, their intellect, is darkened. As Paul wrote to Timothy, they are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that true? Talk about always learning. What an explosion of information is available. And by the way, what an explosion of people that go on to college and get higher degrees and so forth. Ever learning and go into all the fields of life... And it all ends up leading leading nowhere. 
What a picture. Here's how he describes their darkened understanding in Romans 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became, listen, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, God says, let me weigh in. They became fools. A little bit more insight. You're familiar with 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, Paul says, it is veiled to those who are perishing, the unsaved, in whose case the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded, there it is, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the condition the unsaved is in, are in. That's the condition out of which God brought you and saved you. And what do the unsaved understand or know about God? Think about this. What do the unsaved understand, any, any unsaved person, what do they understand and know about God? Nothing. What do they understand about the origin of the universe and how man came to be upon this planet? Nothing. They have the light of creation. They have true science. Notice I said true science. They have the written scriptures, and still they don't have any understanding. And what do they understand about a pur- the purpose of life? Nothing. What do they understand about God's Son and His coming to this planet? Nothing. What do they understand about God's plan and the purpose and the outworking of that plan and purpose? Nothing. What does the unsaved understand about what comes after death? Nothing. Oh, we all go to heaven, or we just become like a dog, and that's when it dies, it's over, nothing remains, or it's reincarnation. They understand nothing. Now ask yourself this question. What do you understand about these great issues? God has opened your heart and understanding, you see. That's why you can no longer walk in the futility of your mind, but you must walk in a worthy manner. You have God, the Holy Spirit, who's enlightened you. He dwells within your very being. Therefore, you and I must walk worthy of this calling. Number C, the detailed description of how the unsaved walk and why they walk that way. Number C, they are excluded from the life of God. Excluded. From the life of God. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. This life of God that they are excluded from is eternal life, of course. That life is Jesus Christ. He came and offered himself, offers this life more abundantly. In John 17, in his prayer just before going to the cross, he prayed, This is eternal life. What's eternal life? This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He further said to his disciples before, just before going to the cross, I am the way. The way, I am the way, I am the truth, so therefore I am the truth. And what else? I am the life. He himself is the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. And they're excluded from this life of God. But Paul gives two reasons for their being excluded from the life of God. Don't miss that. He gives two reasons for their being excluded. Number one, because of the ignorance that is in them. That's what he says there. Being dark in verse 18 in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because, here's the reason why, number one, because of the ignorance that is in them. R.C.H. Lenski says, it is not an acquired ignorance that is due to absence of light and information. It is an original ignorance that is in them from the start. The ignorance of inborn sin. Received from Adam. Here's how Jesus Christ describes that ignorance rather in John 3.19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's why they're ignorant. They love the darkness rather than light. And you know that. People don't want to leave their sin, do they? They don't want to leave their sin. They're ignorant of God himself, of his person, of his glory, attributes. They're ignorant of his purposes. Ignorant, unsaved person do not know that they are in the hands of the living God. They do not know that it is appointed unto them once to die, and after that, what? The judgment. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They're totally ignorant of a thrice holy God who must and will pour His great wrath out upon sin and out upon the unrepentant sinner. They're totally ignorant of that. And they hate that you would go and tell them that truth. But they cannot get saved until they hear and receive and respond appropriately to that truth. But there's a second reason why they're excluded from the life of God. Number two in your outline there, because of the hardness of their hearts. Verse 18. Because of the hardness of their hearts, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Listen, a baby, a baby, a little child starts life being ignorant Okay, That's how we started. It starts life with a sin nature, having received that nature from Adam through the baby's daddy. But that baby, that baby, that little child did not start out with a hardened heart. Through the process of sinning and violating one's conscience again and again, Against the moral and spiritual light God provides, one begins to cultivate and develop the hardened heart. Remember Pharaoh? God was going to deliver his people Israel, and he sent Moses to Pharaoh. And, and obviously he gives some credentials to Pharaoh. He worked miracles. And so he works these miracles, and it says what? Each time Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says it over and over again. So another, then he would repent, and then another miracle would take place, and, uh, and uh, a judgment on Egypt, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And finally you come down to chapter 9 of Exodus, and guess what it says? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it says it over and over again. Dear ones, that's exactly what's happened in Romans 1, and that's what's happening in our nation today as well. 
Man continually chose to respond by rejecting the light God sent to him in creation and in man's conscience, choosing rather to turn away from God and go deeper and deeper into his sin and rebellion. And that's why he uses the background the Ephesians came out of. It was a depth of depravity. But he goes deeper and deeper into his sin and rebellion. And finally God brought upon him a judicially hardened heart. And that can happen to anybody. What a warning. If we choose to go on in sin and deliberately go on and keep going on and God convicts us and we keep going on and keep going on, eventually you're cultivating in your life a hardened heart and God can bring a judicial judgment upon you where he never deals with you again. A sovereign act to keep you blinded, blinded and bound in that sin. Three times in Romans 1, God pronounces that he gave those people and their society over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Notice how it deals with sexual sin here. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. He gave them over to degrading passions. Boy, this is right out of Ephesus. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer... God gave them over to a depraved mind, there's that mind again, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, and the list goes on. God just gives up on them. Judicially hardens their hearts. I think that's where we are as a nation today. So why are, we to, they, why are they excluded from the life of God? Two reasons he gives here. Because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. And this is true of every single unsaved person. Every one of them are in this camp. Now do you understand why it takes concerted prayer and the sharing of God's written word for the people to get saved? You and I can't save them. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can take His written word and begin to work in their lives and to soften that heart and turn that heart to Him. You and I can't do that, but He can do it. It's a miracle that He does. We praise God that He still does that. By the way, Ephesians 1.13 is a good example of that, and He wrote that to the Ephesian believers. Ephesians 1.13, He says, In Him, Jesus Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. So there's the truth being proclaimed, the gospel. Having also believed... You were sealed in Him with Holy Spirit of promise. So you have the Word of God, the written Word of God proclaimed, and you have God the Holy Spirit doing that work in their life, bringing them to saving faith, as He did for you and me if you're saved. But number D, a detailed description of how the unsaved walk and why they walk that way. Number D in your outline, they being callous, walk in the depth of their depravity. They, being callous, walk in the depth of their depravity. Verse 19, look at this ocean they swim around in. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality. They've given them, just completely given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul here describes the unsaved, unsaved person's pursuit into the depth of their sin. He, his, he's describing the unrestrained sinner here, isn't he? 
Anything goes. This person is totally unashamed and brazen in his or her sinning, especially when it comes to sexual sins. You know, you see these groups, these singing groups. You see them advertised on television and so forth. And what they wear, virtually nothing. I heard of one group, uh, rock, they urinate on the crowd in front of them. I mean, anything goes. They're totally unabashed, unashamed. The, the further they can go into depravity and exploit it, the further they desire to go. Amazing. They flaunt it. They promote it to the extreme, extreme, just as we see today. Now listen, remember, this is the world out of which these Ephesian Christians got saved. And may I add, it is the world we are living in today. And as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, although, listen to this, although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Is that not our culture today? That's our culture today. We're in the same culture the Ephesians were back there. When I speak of them being callous, that they walk in the depth of their depravity, and Paul describes their depravity here in verse 19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. We need to understand that every unsaved person is included in this great cesspool or sea of sin. Some just swim deeper in it than others. Some promote it more than others. But they're all in that ocean or sea of sin. Vile and putrid. But Paul does not conclude by focusing on the negative when he describes these visions and what the life that came out of. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. He then presents the positive that we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week. But let me read that again, verses 20 through 24. But you did not learn Christ this way. Isn't that good? If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, he just described it in detail. You lay aside the old self, the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now listen, dear ones, it's so important for you and I to look at this and say, God, what mercy What grace that you saved me out of that sea of putrid, vile sin. That was my condition, even as a six-year-old. That was your condition, whatever age you got. That's where you were. As he said, in the futility of your mind, you're trying to live life. And it led to nowhere, except finally to the grave and into hell. And your understanding was darkened. You didn't know about God. You didn't know about salvation. You didn't know about His plan. You didn't know the purpose of life. You were darkened there. Excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that was in you, as well as the hardness of your heart, if you are saved when you're later on in your life. And yet God stepped in 
And he saved you. He says, do you see, Paul says, why you can no longer live in that old life? No wonder Peter says, make certain about his calling and choosing you. We live differently because we have the very life of Christ in us. We have the Holy Spirit of God permanently dwelling within us. We have the written Word of God to give us the teaching. We have the whole body of Christ to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we must keep right on growing in that grace and knowledge by walking worthy of our calling. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for having Paul write a description of the unsaved person, the world they came out of, or I should say the world that they're in, that great sea of depravity. And I thank you that, Lord, out of great mercy and grace, you came and you called upon our heart. You gave us the scriptures. You opened our our blind mind of understanding. And we saw that we were sinners and one heartbeat from an eternal damnation in hell. It's amazing, Father, that most of the world doesn't even care. I mean, they want a better life. They want a worthwhile life, but they don't care about you. They don't care to hear about your son coming and being the only one who can take away their sin and give them eternal life. They don't care about hell because they don't believe in hell. That's how blind they are. How utterly lost they are. And so they move through life, Lord. And you may give them years. They may go to 90 or even possibly 100 years. And then finally the heart quits. And Lord, at that time, what sobering dread. As they find out they have to deal with a holy God. Who will not excuse. Who will not ignore sin and the rebellious sinner but must would damn that person for eternity into the lake of fire. And the devil just keeps them ignorant, blind to this truth. Father, but you have opened our heart and mind and saved us, and indeed it is amazing grace that we should be saved. Having looked at this description of the unsaved and the ocean of sin that they swim around in day in and day out. We were in that ocean, but God, you stepped in and saved us. And now we must, knowing these things, walk worthy of this calling, of this so great a salvation. Help us to begin then to grow in that grace and knowledge. And become more and more from glory to glory like our Lord and Savior until you call us home. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, that's, that's difficult to get a hold of. We're to work it out with what? Fear and trembling. Because it's God who is at work in us. And Father, for anyone who is here that's unsaved, and you know every single person, nobody hides from you. You know whether they're one heartbeat from hell. 
You know whether they're born into your family or not. If there's one person here that's unsaved, God, I long for that person. We as a body of believers pray that you'll take the blindness away. Cause them to, to, to repent of their sin, of the rebellion against you. Cause them to turn their heart and say, Jesus is a son of God and he's the only one who can save me. And that's why he came and went to the cross and bore all my sin and all my deserved punishment, penalty, judgment. And you raised him from the dead on the third day to prove that through him they could be forgiven and could be born in your family and they could walk in newness of life. Instead of walking as an unsaved Gentile's walk. Oh God, I can't save them. I can't even bring conviction into their life. I can share the truth. But Holy Spirit, only you can bring it to bear like a sharp sword that cuts deeply into their innermost being. I pray that you'll do that for Father, they're one heartbeat from eternal damnation. Maybe they don't care. Cause them to fear and dread then. Cause them not to be able to sleep the rest of this night throughout the week. Lord, just cause fear and dread to come upon them until they turn to you and come to saving faith and know the joy of salvation. Know that you are the true God, the Heavenly Father, their Heavenly Father, that they know that they've been completely forgiven. They've been born into your family and now possess eternal life. Now they have purpose for living. We pray that, Father. The whole body here of redeemed, pray that for them. That's how serious it is. They're in that sea, living in futility. They're understanding blinded without the life of God. Save them, we pray, in that amazing grace that saved us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might be here today and say, man, there's no way in the world I'm going to step out in a crowd like this and identify myself that way. But boy, I do want to be saved. Listen, see me. See one of our leaders. Even the person next to you say, look, would you show me how I can know that I'm forgiven, that I can be saved? I want to know that. I want to get that settled today. And dear one, if you do pray that prayer to ask Jesus into your heart and life, tell somebody, I got saved. I asked Jesus into my heart. He said he wants you not to be ashamed of him. Tell somebody, I got saved. That's the most important decision you'll ever be. And you need to ask yourself, are you in that sea that we just saw there in verses 17 through 19? Or are you one of God's redeemed, saved children born into his family? You need to be able to answer that concretely, firmly. I know I am saved.